You're listening to Welcome back to, first of all, a real unfiltered conversation on life, family, love, career, and modern culture. My name is Minji Chang, and I am your host. Welcome back for episode 14. And this week, I'm flying solo for a very important featured topic that I wanted to share some of my thoughts and my story on. Um, but for those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so happy to have you join us. Thank you to everybody who's been reviewing um, and leaving positive, encouraging notes, the tweets and uh, the emails. It's just been really, really encouraging and heartwarming. So thank you guys uh, for participating. For all you new listeners, uh, this is uh, my little virtual living room, my little corner to speak my mind and to share my thoughts with you all. Usually I have a featured guest, but I think we're kind of reaching the halfway point where half of my podcasts are solo and half are with uh, with somebody else. But we have a featured topic. Usually I have an IMO segment when I have a guest called In My Opinion, where we give advice, solicited advice from one of our listeners. And uh, this week, I'm actually going to forego that. This is just going to be a storytelling segment. But we will return next week with a guest and a, and a different feature topic. But for now, let's dive right into this. I wanted to... Honestly, this topic is one of the reasons why I started this podcast in the first place. I wanted to have it be a place where women, myself and other women, could be heard and understood. I have been relatively new to the podcast world. I've only really been listening for about a couple years now, but I know that there are people... Uh, there have been people who have been listening for years upon years and podcasts have been around for quite a lot, long time. And in that time, I did notice that there was... um a little bit of a shortage of female voices. And, uh, you know, we're half of the world. I think a little bit more, maybe 51%. And th- those stories are rarely short- shared and told. So I wanted to contribute. I wanted to be part of that. And now we are dealing with a veritable shitstorm of Harvey Weinstein. Now, Harvey Weinstein is, for those of you who have, living, have been living under a rock or, you know, staying away from social media, bless your heart, and preserving your sanity by not being on social media on Twitter or reading the news. Um, Harvey Weinstein is a very, very powerful producer. Uh, he is a very powerful businessman who has been dominating Hollywood for a number of years. He is the co-founder of the Weinstein Company and Miramax, and I believe that they have had their hands in dozens of, I think over a hundred films, like hundreds of films and, and played with, uh, not played with, I mean, have worked with major actresses, major players in, in the film and entertainment industry, people that we revere and respect, major Hollywood stars, um, people in front and behind the camera. And, uh, it's being, discovered and uh, shared widely because apparently there were a lot of people who did know about what was going on and just were doing the, oh, well, that's Harvey routine. 
He's been sexually abusing women, dozens upon dozens of women for years. He has been accused of rape. And this is not the first time. This is the story that's unfolding right now is the extent, the impact, the degree, the quantity of abuse and, uh, incidents that have been occurring over three decades and have been very widely known and, uh, just allowed to happen up until now. So I didn't really want to spend too much time because, again, this is a, a topic that's being heavily discussed, um, and there's a lot of facts that are coming out to light. I honestly wanted to speak out on this. A while back, it's been, I don't even know, how, I have no sense of time right now, you guys, just keeping up with Trump and <laughs> now Harvey Weinstein and then the Uber CEO and then, you know, I don't know, and Casey Affleck and every every asshole that has been doing this, it just, you can't, how are you supposed to catalog it, you guys? You know, I got to pay rent. I got to eat. I got to, you know, produce my conference. I'm, I'm, I'm producing a leadership conference and a showcase for my nonprofit that I run. There's a lot going on, and I'm trying to build my career as an actor. I can't keep up with all your sexual allegations because there's just too many. Do you hear what I'm saying? God damn. Okay, so... Harvey Weinstein is Harvey Weinstein. He's a piece of shit. Let me just be clear. And if you guys can't gauge from my personality from this podcast, I have a lot of uh fire to me, I guess. I've been described in, in, in a variety of ways in terms of my uh strength and being opinionated and being outspoken. Yes, I am a lot of those things. But in certain categories where I feel authority, comfort, safety to speak out on, I'm very outspoken. But in a lot of other ways, I have been just as silent and just as scared and frightened and exhausted and stressed out to not speak out. And I and I wanted to take this episode to share a bit of my story in light of all of the things that have been happening out there on the internet. Now, you guys all know this Harvey Weinstein, not you guys all know, a lot of you guys know this Harvey Weinstein scandal, but it's not a scandal. It's just kind of fucked up everyday life for a lot of women. And the thing that's coming to light and the, I guess the, uh, um, bravery and the feeling of empowerment that's surging right now that I want to feed into very intentionally is this feeling of, I can say what happened to me. That's been happening in the last few days um, with a Twitter movement and a hashtag movement of Me Too. I'm actually not quite sure who started. I think I, I saw a headline referencing uh, Alyssa Milano, who's a, a famous actress who got her start in Hollywood from Who's the Boss? And uh, what was the show? Bewitched? Not Bewitched. <laughs> the show about the witches. I can't think right now. My mind's on other things. But there has been a, a huge uptick of women sharing the hashtag Me Too or the status Me Too on Facebook, sharing if they have been the recipient or victim of sexual assault or harassment. I think in less than 24 hours, it was at a half a million. And these are people who are actively on social media. This is people who... You know, that number, <laughs> sadly to me, is just really small, but you know, it's only been 24 hours. Right now, I think we're at the 36 hour mark. So we're going to, we're going to keep seeing how this goes because the numbers are going to keep coming out. And the goal, I believe, behind that is to, to show that if every woman who has ever 
currently living, right, that has experienced, currently living and on social media, has experienced sexual harassment and assault, shared that factoid about themselves, would that make, what kind of picture would that paint to the public? For those of you who didn't know that your friend, your sister, your cousin, your coworker, your teacher, your employee, whoever was the victim of sexual assault and you just didn't know that, whether you're male or female, to kind of understand the gravity of the magnitude of this problem. And I think it is. I think it's really making an impact. And I think that um, it's bringing a lot of people forward where they might not have. And I wanted to share my story, one of my stories, to start shedding reasons why. And again, this is also for myself to start unpackaging this in any sort of public platform. Honestly, this podcast has been a terrifying but exhilarating experience because I have listeners all over the world. And granted, you know, I'm not, I don't have thousands upon thousands of listeners, but the fact that anybody who's not in my immediate close circle of friends that I'm entrusting, you know, with my personal experience, it is very daunting and it's very, just, it's, it's a feeling. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. I'm blown away by this experience, but it's also, again, by the reviews and the, the messages and the encouragement that I'm getting from friends and from strangers. It is a very liberating experience. And, um, I guess I'll start my story by saying that I haven't been particularly silent in my personal life about what I've gone through. I've navigated a very interesting road where a lot of what I went through at the time that I did was made public. And I'll explain further in a second. But so I kind of had that um, barrier broken through where I was like, well, shit, people already know about it. And also why I did feel an indignation at a young age. Why should I hide this when there's this monster out there who treated me this way, is probably going to treat other people this way, and I didn't feel right or, you know, good about myself being quiet about it. You know, I had still had a lot of anger to process. So I wasn't really silent. I've been sharing this. I actually um, was part of a domestic violence awareness music video with the gorgeous, wonderful human being that is Suzanne Luna. She is a producer for the Ellen DeGeneres show, and she produced a, a music video, written, a song that was written specifically for domestic violence awareness, which ironically, you guys, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I think every month should be. It sucks that certain things just get a month. But yeah, this is the month where we get to highlight it. And ironically, this is when Harvey Weinstein, which is, you know, arguably one of the most powerful people in Hollywood is we're seeing his toppling over. I'm very honestly, very satisfied and happy to see that. And it's the ripple effect is going to be tremendous. And it already is, which is why this is a good thing. Um, and it's not centered around one person, but he's a rep- big representation of the power dynamics and the uh, complicity that we give to this topic. But anyways, I've been very, I've been pretty open. I have uh, participated in that domestic violence awareness music video. I have participated in storytelling events. Shout out to Jenny Yang with Disoriented Comedy. She invited me to be part of her storytellers, um, her family reunion storytellers event here in Los Angeles where I talked about sexuality and that sexuality was pinpointed around my sexual abuse experience. And all these different incremental things have allowed me to open up about this story. But I, I think definitely this will be the most I've gone into it in detail in any sort of public format. So please bear with me. 
I also want to preface this with a factoid that this is just one of my stories. Okay. I have literally dozens of stories and I can detail them because I still remember them and it sucks because I don't want to be dragging around this kind of bullshit, but I have to this day. And you guys, this is a podcast episode. Like, look at which one was it? Seven, eight? I don't know. It was one of my episodes where I dealt with, I wasn't assaulted, but I was dealing with my, you know, Asian fetish audition. This level of objectifying women and just treating us as objects as as a fucking joke is part of our everyday lives, which might also be why we don't sit and be outraged about it until something this major and this disgusting and this like outrightly violating of our rights as a human being to exist in in time space reality with any semblance of safety and peace of mind and respect this just let's take a second to step back and reflect on that okay like it takes that level because this shit happens every day in so many ways and this is why we got to talk about it all right i when's the last time i was sexually assaulted like verbally last week some some guy said some shit to me on the street and yeah i mean there's i'm ugh, i can't <laughs> I'm processing. Okay. So to start on this story, I'm, I, I am figuring out as I go how much of it I want to share. And I did think about how I wanted to share it, but I'll just start with the fact that I, I dated my abuser. I uh, was in a serious long-term relationship with my abuser for five years. Um, <laughs> damn, this, I thought I'd be, yeah, well, I am fired up, but this is awkward. <clears throat> this guy was somebody from church. Uh, this guy was a lot older than me. Uh, nine and a half years older to be exact. And I was 14. And so that means he was 23. And, um, that's just nasty. Let's <laughs> just prep. I'm a grown ass woman. I'm in my thirties. That's nasty. A 14 year old. I look at 21 year olds as children. No offense. I love you guys. I know you're growing and you know, you're grown up and everything, but let's be real. You're a child. Um, and I don't see that in a bad way, <laughs> but that's just gross. Okay. 14 year old is absolutely a child. Absolutely a child. And, um, of course when I was 14, I thought I knew everything and I thought that, uh, I had a good grasp of myself and the world. Oh, no. And by societal standards, somebody who's 23 has a lot more knowledge of the world and um, rules of conduct and propriety and maturity, ideally, um, to not cross that line. This is why there's laws in place of statutory rape, um, a law that I know very well. And uh, this guy was the son of my parents' friend. Um, my parents were very, 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 very good friends with his parents. And I was actually at his house when he approached me for the first time. So um, the story stems from a church gathering. And, you know, there's there's a lot of different facts about domestic violence and how the vast majority of assaults and abuse happen within, you know, a one to two degree degree of separation. It's usually people that are very close to you, family members, um, family friends, etc. And 
I'm textbook in that way. It was a family friend. And uh, this guy was a tall, good-looking guy, very loved at the church. He was not by any means socially awkward or an outcast or somebody who didn't have friends. He was a very loved guy. He took great, great pains to uh, to work out, to drive a flashy car. And honestly, I could write a novel of all the, the shit I want to say about him as a person. Um, but it's really not... I mean, if there's things to reflect on him and what uh, I learned from his behavior, his tendencies, the way he presented himself to other people, the truth behind his behaviors, the way that he thought... I know I learned this very extensively over the course of five years of being his girlfriend. Um, but in terms of the experience, you know, he approached me when it was like, it was a Bible study gathering and there were multiple families that were present and were all, you know, had our potluck. They had their, the parents had their Bible study meeting. I was in the family room watching TV with a bunch of other kids and, you know, everyone's doing their own thing. He, he didn't, he was all dressed up because he didn't go out with his friends. Something got canceled. And instead of being out with friends his own age, he came back um and sat with me, you know, in the family room and proceeded to ask little tidbits about me. I'm straight up, you guys, like, I'm pretty sure I'm like 95% sure I remember what I was wearing, which I was wearing overalls. Okay. And I was wearing like fucking pigtails or something. And, um, I looked like a child is what I'm trying to say. I look like almost a child now. I'm again in my thirties. I get cast for college student roles. I'm a young Asian girl. Like I, I look young. Um, bless. I'm very grateful for that. But like also, ew. Um, and he proceeded to like with I don't know how long that conversation lasted, but by the end of the conversation, he had my AOL screen name, which just, you know, AIM's going to be dying soon. And then, um, my pager number. God. And uh, he, by the end of that night, by the time I got home, I had a voicemail from him. And uh, <laughs> it's just, wow, I can't believe I'm telling this on air. The seduction had began, like straight up from the first voicemail. I mean, if I heard that voicemail, say that like I had a hypothetical little sister and I heard some dude, even her age, talk to her the way he talked to me on that voicemail. I would delete it, block his number, and, like, forbid her from ever probably, and that would probably make her see him more. But, like, I would, you know, make it a point to say you cannot talk to this person. And uh, from our first conversation, which was, I believe, the next day, our first phone conversation, um, we talked on AOL. I think that night I had the death—this that is the age of desktop computers, guys, desktop computers and dial-up internet. I had the internet in my room. I was 14. I was in ninth grade. And um, I think we chatted online that night because I think I remember I got home maybe like 9, 45, 10 o'clock. And by that night, we were chatting online. And then the next day, we had our first phone conversation. And within the first phone conversation, he asked me how often I masturbated. So um, again, I could take hours upon hours. And I do actually really want to write this down because a lot of these memories are very, very vivid. I could explain in detail what I wore. And it's just a bizarre thing to remember all these things. Um, and it honestly feels like it's a different life. But um, just because my life is so drastically different, I'm so lucky, you know, despite all the period, you know, intermittent annoyance and harassment, yes, from 
other men. I've had a really wonderful life after this guy. And it just is very bizarre to me that I lived this. Um, but yeah, just he, he was sexual right off the bat. He talked to me about very inappropriate things. My, again, I'm 14 years old. He's 23 and, um, just asking me all sorts of things. What kind of, what kind of guys I like asking me in detail, um, about anything that I've seen pornographically related, asking me, um, you know, what I've done with other guys. If I have, uh, you know, ever seen a, a penis in real life, just being extremely graphic and, in, and inappropriate and invasive. And what I can tell you from the get-go about my mindset as a 14-year-old, I went through puberty very young. Um, I was, it was just before I turned 10, 10 years old, right after I turned, it was around 10 years old. And, um, nobody had ever spoken to me about sex. I didn't know I don't, I don't think I'd even gone through sex ed. I think I went through sex ed after I got my period. Um, my mom had asked me in Korean one conversation on the way to school if I had started my mens. I think that's the word that she used. I didn't know what that meant. And I hadn't started anything. Like I was trying to understand what she was even asking me. So I said no, cause I hadn't at the time she asked. And I remember when I first got my period, I was like, Oh, I think this is the thing that my mom talked about. And I'd also seen my mom's, you know, her pads and stuff at home. So when I got my period, it just, I had to put two and two together. I was in school at my elementary school and I was like, oh, this is that diaper thing that my mom used. I should go maybe talk to the school nurse or something. I don't know. I was kind of like instinctually went to the office because I didn't, I freaked out, but not because I'd seen something that I equated to like, this is what my mom uses that thing for. Anyway, enough about my period. Um... I went through puberty really early. I matured really early. I'm boy crazy. I've admitted that on the online dating episode. I'm glad you guys are enjoying that, by the way. Um, and so I was very familiar with boys. I was familiar with the fact that they have penises. Um, I have brother, I have a brother. I had guy cousins. Like I knew we were anatomically different. There's a difference between boys and girls. Um, I knew that there was attraction chemistry. I knew all that since I was like six. Um, and I'd seen my first porn. Sorry to my friend, I don't let you feel everyone's secrets. I saw my first porn when I was like 10 or 11. Again, I have an older brother. Like, you know, it's just there. You know, people look at Playboys. I don't, I don't want to reveal too many of everyone else's secrets, but I had been exposed to it. I knew what sex was. And, um, I had only been kissed by the time I started talking to my abuse. I don't even want, what, know what to call him. Um, but yeah, I had, I had boyfriends, I had held hands, and given the fact that I was honestly very sexually curious and sexually open in a way and sexually mature earlier than other girls that I knew, I had only kissed a guy on the lips. I hadn't even made out with any guy, and I was 14, and I'd had multiple boyfriends, but it was a lot of hand-holding and phone calling and note writing, but um James, shout out to James, he's a dear friend of mine still, but he was my first kiss no tongue. We didn't make out. It's just a very innocent, beautiful kiss. And, uh, yeah. So that was the extent of my sexual experience. So this, the fact that this guy is like diving into my private everything was really, to be honest, really exciting. And, um, I'd been sexually curious and aware for a good four years at that point. So the fact that this guy was good looking guy, older, nice car, all that stuff, all very popular and all the, you know, it's the standard like quarterback of the football team, except this quarterback done, you know, he has already graduated high school, you know, five years earlier. 
And just, it's so, I knew it was wrong. I knew he shouldn't be talking to me. I knew he shouldn't be asking me these questions. And to me at the time at 14 years old, gave me excitement. It gave me a lot of validation and just like, oh, this, you know, I felt like I graduated to the upper echelon of like pimp status. I got an older guy interested in me, you know, screw these like middle school, high school guys. And half of them, you know, I had all these unrequited crushes. Oh, these guys won't even give me the time of day. And this guy's like hitting on me. There's a lot of psychology behind this. And, you know, this, again, relates to dating and how we connect with one another and honestly, ultimately how we see ourselves. But that's really what it was. Um, he should not have been talking to me. And um, I proceeded to become his girlfriend, I think, by the second time we talked on the phone. I did resist very minorly at the beginning because I felt the wrongness of it. I felt, oh, this guy shouldn't be talking to me. Um, I will get my ass kicked if I, there was, you know, I lived in a strict Korean Christian household. I knew that this was not acceptable or right in any way. And the funniest thing is that people ask me every time they find out like, oh, I had an abusive boyfriend who was older, et cetera. They're like, how did your parents react to that? I was like, are you crazy? Do you think I told my parents? Like what teenager tells their parents anything? Like, let's just be real right? Like, that's what's just frightening. Again, I want teenagers to talk to their parents. For God's sake, I hope my children in the future talk to me. By all means, I've learned so much from this experience. It's definitely shaped how I want to treat my children. But like, in what world? Are you crazy? I did not tell my parents. I was lying from the get-go. And it was our secret. It was our secret relationship. It was our secret little tryst, our little affair. I'm being like a bad girl. I wasn't trying to be a bad girl. I just like really was excited by this guy. I was really attracted to him. He's telling me all these things, how mature I am, how cute I am. And then when, oh, when I wear these types of clothes that I look really sexy, I felt for all that shit. I was 14 years old, you guys. And yes, I lied to my parents for five years straight, pretty much. Um, except for when I was 16. Again, this long story short, I, I mean, like clearly I'm not going to go into every detail of this relationship. Um, though I do, honestly, I have movies I want to make just cataloging the way that this shit played out because it was so fucked up and there were so many powers at play that allowed it to happen. Okay. There's so many things that I have spent the last, honestly, since it started, since I was 14, decades, over, you know, decade and a half analyzing and trying to wrap my head around, like, how did this happen? How did this play out? How did it get this bad? Because in summary, this, this relationship was a fucking Korean drama. I mean, Korean dramas can be really bad, but yeah, I mean, just Korean drama, but in real life. And that shit is not cute. And it's not like people end up in some romantic way riding off into the sunset. This, this shit almost destroyed me and it almost destroyed my family. Um, and very grateful to say, I'm eternally grateful to this day that it didn't, but it was a very sick and very painful and very gross, infuriating, dehumanizing experience that I know I'm, I sound so, this is how I genuinely feel, but honestly, I've kept quiet about it to it in, in a bizarre way because I'm like, this happens all the fucking time. I don't want to seem like a drama queen. It was a number of things that kept me quiet about this, which is like the fact that I, 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 I'm an outspoken person. So I like in certain ways had been socially programmed like, oh, you know, not, okay, certain people, um, made me feel, I felt bad because of what they said. They said things that 
I responded to by feeling that I was too dramatic or that I was too expressive or that, um, that I was very vain and that I was trying to make everything about me. Being treated, being told that to my face by, actually only by really one individual, um, really shut me up and made me feel like, oh, I'm going to be that dramatic bitch who just like trying to make everything about her. And, um, I didn't want to share my story, even though I felt wrong keeping quiet about it. Uh, I felt like I was going to be judged. I felt like people, A, would probably take his side too, because a lot of people welcomed him back to our church with open arms after finding out a lot of these things. I'm sorry, I'm jumping all over the place, but he was, five years later, he was revealed to be basically a pedophile. And um, it was just, it was really, really bad. But he still went back to church and he was accepted by a lot of people that I had grown up my entire life knowing and trusting, seeing a lot of things. I just didn't feel like I had a place to say anything. I didn't see the utility in it, honestly, at that point to fight because I wanted to just move on with my life. I wanted to forget about him. I wanted to erase it from my memory. I didn't feel like I would necessarily have backup from people because if the people closest to me that I trusted and people in my church that are supposed to protect me and and look out for my well-being and that were essentially my family weren't going to back me up and betray me, honestly, by knowingly, you know, was enabling his behavior. Why why should I say anything? Why should I say anything? What good would it do? What what good would it do in my life? And what what would actually happen in a constructive way? I felt very defeated. And um, I definitely was feeling weak and cowardly and just wanted to run away and never deal with it ever again. There's a lot of layers to this, guys. Um, but fast forward, in summary, I guess, because I spent so much time just setting the stage, he went from being extremely emotionally abusive, um, calling me a lot of different names, very disgusting, very depraved, very nasty names on the daily basis. He, um, I, I didn't have sex with him until I was 15, whole whopping nine years later. We got together Valentine's Day when I was 14. And by Thanksgiving, we had had sex. Um, I'm actually very curious. I want to kind of unpackage that, how I spent nine months resisting. Cause from the day we spoke, he wanted to have sex with me. Um, but, um, I didn't feel anything my first time. I left my body. I remember that. Um, he shamed my body. He made comments about things that to this day I'm so self-conscious about. <sighs> he, I, was, I was cornered and I didn't want to do it. But... I felt like I should because I guess allowing him to be my boyfriend and allowing him to talk to me sexually and the things that he said to back up his, his argument of why I belong to him and why I should have sex with him. Um, I felt obligated to, I kind of just felt like I was going down this rabbit hole where like, well, this is, I already agreed. I already talked about sex with him. I already, um, you know, it was just this, like, it's just so bizarre. But I was 15 years old, and I I remember a lot of details about the first time, and then also nothing, because I didn't feel anything. I was, like, completely out of my body. Um, this guy never hit me, but I wanted... There are a lot of different times. Pretty much that, uh, a good chunk of the five years I was with him, I wanted him to hit me versus emotionally... 
um, psychologically, verbally, financially abuse me. Um, and I think I'm going to leave it at that. I think in terms of the story, uh, there's more I want to share. I really do, but I just don't know how right now. I don't know how to. It's really sad, you guys. It's so. It's so sad. It's just infuriating. And I walked around with a lot of anger for so long. Just feeling rage about how someone can do that to somebody. And how they can sleep at night. Like, how do you live being that person? How can you do that and steal? I feel like... <laughs> I'm crying on air. Um, how can you... It's stealing somebody's humanity. You're stealing a beautiful young girl and you're stealing her innocence and you're stealing her her whatever shred, whatever little semblance of self-worth that she has. And she's already struggling in a world where she's just objectified and, and, and dictated to of how she needs to be and how she needs to think and how she needs to carry herself. By what authority? Do you know what I mean? Like, who the fuck decided that? You know, a lot of men. And I don't hate all men, but there's some fucked up men. And there's some fucked up practices that have been happening all around the world for literally since the beginning of time. As far as we have documentation of you guys, this is written down in books how women have been treated as property. And it just drives me crazy because to this day in 2017 where we're all claiming, and we have, we've made so much progress. I cannot emphasize compared to literally 20 years ago, 50 years ago. I mean, holy shit, we've made leaps and bounds, but this is still real. If we're trying to delude ourselves to be like, you know, oh my God, men and women are equal. Fuck that noise. Let me just say very clearly, fuck that shit because we are not treated as equals. And for the fact that this shit can happen with Harvey Weinstein and so many other men who are not positions of power or and men who are positions of powers, but within households, between husbands and wives, between teachers and students, between pastors and their congregations, between lawyers and their clients, between doctors and their patients, this shit happens still all the time. And I'm not going to lie and live in this deluded world where everything's good and everything's fair and everything's equal because it's not. It's just not. And that's all the shit that allowed this to happen. I went through five years of giving up my body, my sanity, my money. I gave this guy money monthly. I mean, there's just this is tip of the iceberg shit with this guy and there's enough people out there who want to, you know, whatever. And this is not me exacting revenge on him. This is just me telling what the fuck happened to me. This is my story. I gave him my money. Since I was 14, I was working in a dry cleaners near my house. I was making money and giving him money for his car, for food. I bought us, this is a 14 year old girl buying food. For a 23-year-old. I mean, okay, talk about chivalry and that's like a whole other dating thing of like, should men pay? Okay, you know what? When we're making 76 cents to the dollar, yeah, pay. Like, I honestly, I'm cool with that. Please, just woo me. God damn it. But I'm buying him food as a child to an adult. Like, 
God, I used my college meal points to get him food. And I would go to him and I would sneak out to him and he was fucking how many other girls? This guy was like hitting on other teenage girls. I know so much about the way this guy thought and the fucking shit that I like, honestly, that I endured is so baffling to me at this point. Like, it is baffling because there's not one iota of that that I would tolerate at this point. Sometimes you just have to go through it so you know what you're not going to tolerate anymore, right? Trust me, you guys. Like, I don't know what was in my brain to let, to just be enduring that and to still hang on with this like brainwashed mentality that he loved me and that I loved him and that according to the Bible, I belonged to him. This, this has a lot to do with my Christian upbringing too. I went to a Baptist church that was like my family, my roots, my everything, my world, my community. You know, I'm still, some of my best friends are from church and like, I appreciate how I was raised. I'm, but there's some fucked up stuff that was happening there. And he used God, the Bible, church, everything to claim ownership of me. And again, I'm like, honestly, I don't even know how I'm going to feel about this podcast once it's public, but it was, it was just gross. And to the point where he controlled everything that I did, who I, as much as he could, as much as he humanly could, he controlled everything that I did. I complied with vast majority of it. Newsflash, if you're listening to this, I don't know even if you're listening to this. I don't know if you still stalk me. I have no idea. I know you did stalk me after we broke up, but if you're listening to this, I, I, I did things that I wanted to do. I, I wanted to be a normal teenager. Um, didn't, he didn't let me go to dances. He didn't let me speak to people. He checked my voicemail all the time. He checked my email. He had my screen name. He had passwords to everything. Um, he shut me off from everybody that I knew. Um, he would tell everybody, you know, build everybody around me as liars. And he wouldn't let me be in a a room alone with any other male, including my own family members saying that something could happen and that they could, the fact that he thought that way just revealed a lot. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was to the point where I went crazy several times. It was a, it was a very, uh, abusive relationship. And I, uh, used to even ask this guy for permission to go to the bathroom. Like that's how, deep it went um and that's just again tip of the iceberg <laughs> i don't want to do this like giant vent session but honestly this this stuff needs to be dealt with this there's so much that women children and and other men too okay and it's not but like just statistically this is vast majority of women that have been treated like this it's just sickening and it's infuriating and it's very textbook and it's just so sad. And, um, luckily I got out of it at 19 years old. It got about a thousand times worse before it got any better, but I got out of it. Um, I've been doing really well since then and, um, no longer speak to that guy, but <laughs> he's been for the most part out of my universe, but he's still it's been you know over a decade and still lasts um and my heart goes out to you this is my vent session and also my call for action because this is so real and so unintentionally but unequivocally defining of our trajectory in life um i was suicidal for probably the last two years of our relationship. Uh, 
I did things that, yeah, I may never share openly with the public. I've shared with a couple friends things that I've carried around a lot of shame and rage and um, guilt and a lot of things, you know. But I'd say, honestly, from the moment we broke up and I really honestly saw the light and got out of it, it was, uh, it was like a rebirth and I haven't looked back in, in terms of like wanting to be with him. But the reason why I'm sharing all this is because this is something that happens so often, um, with so many different people. And we need to talk about, cause we need to figure out what the actual solution is. You know, we need to take some time to reflect on the problem. We need to know the depth of the problem. This is poison that goes so far into people's psyches, into how people believe, um, that relationships ought to be, power dynamics, gender roles, um, just cultural issues. Like I, I definitely know, and this has been a really hard thing for me to grapple with because it, it involves my own family and my own culture and what I grew up seeing. And, um, you know, Korean culture is extremely prideful. They're very, it's such a beautiful culture in a lot of ways, but it's like so many other cultures, like incredibly patriarchal. It's so gross in the machismo that is so pervasive in terms of what men believe that their role is in society and how they ought to conduct their business and how they ought to treat women or what they believe they have a right to do and how they perceive themselves in in the grand scheme of things and how women enable that by taking on their gender role as the woman to do xyz and then just of generations and like my parents being children of people that were in a war-torn country with North Korea. Um, my father lost his, not lost, but his mom was out of the picture when he was a young, at a young age and he dealt with a really difficult father. And again, I feel like I don't have that right to share that story, but that definitely impacted me. And that definitely impacted how I saw my parents' marriage and how I saw marriages in general of like, the mom is the woman that cooks the food and watches the children and they're the ones that say I love you and hug them if they do you know not even all moms did that but like the dad is you know it's normal for them to be silent and inexpressive and honestly very cold and mean sometimes and harsh but that's just the way Korean dads are there's all these normalized paradigms that we've lived in that impact the what we ultimately receive as normal behavior as acceptable behavior even when you consciously intelligently logically know that this isn't right there's something very subliminal and intrinsic about the way you're raised that say oh well this is you know i just need to shut up and endure this i just need to be okay with this because this is how this goes and even if you consciously know that it's not your body and your emotions and your psyche accept it to a degree it allows for it that's why we need to change this okay this is why we need to like talk about it to identify it and say i'm consciously choosing not to reproduce reiterate this bullshit that we know is so damaging and so toxic right um i had yeah i had parts of my childhood were really rough and parts of my childhood were amazing and i grew up with um a rough you know relationship with my father Definitely had a lot of self-esteem issues. Talked about that in the last episode with body image. These are all connected, you know? I grew up thinking I was ugly. So yeah, when a, a hot, quote, he's not, so not. You are not hot. If you're listening, you're not hot. Um, sorry, that's just being mean. <laughs> I'm just turning evil. But 
no, I don't think you're attractive anymore. But at the time, I believed you were God's gift. And just thinking that, you know, this is like the hottest guy I'm ever going to get. And when you're 15, of course, you're 14, you're going to think that. And he's convincing you of that. Um, I just had a lot of self-esteem issues and a lot of low self-worth. Um, I didn't have a good sense of myself. And that's hard for a lot of 14-year-olds. But I also have seen really wonderful, self-possessed, healthy 14-year-olds. I've met a lot of really great kids, so I know that it's possible. But there's, you know, when you grow up thinking that you don't deserve any better, it's probably what's going to end up happening in terms of being manifested in your life. Um, I do want to reflect on the fact that, you know, the relationship was very cyclical, and I want to reflect and let this be a point of learning for people who don't know or just to reiterate that there's a cycle of abuse. It's not always bad. There's a reason why it's a cycle is because you have like this honeymoon period. You have um, this feeling of elation that like everything's good and somebody loves you and like they're being really excessive with the compliments and the gifts and like these really showy, showy um, displays of affection. And, and it just can play out in so many different ways, whether that's gifts or verbal comp- compliments or, you know, social media now. Holy shit. Like just putting it all over your social media that you like this this partner of yours is a goddess and or god and like you just think that honestly i get really weirded out now at this point when i see like people are overly like excessively on a daily just praising their their partners publicly i literally my response is like what are you hiding like why are you so extra there's just normal levels of appreciation and there's just like it's too much and i know that very well so i'm just like what's your deal are you cheating on her? Are you trying to like make yourself feel better for the fact that you're like hiding something? Anyway, just saying that. Um, and then there's obviously some incident, like you, you tensions build and then you get to the incident and the incident is where the abuse happens, whether that's verbal, you know, verbal, emotional or physical. That's, you know, the outburst and suddenly, you know, everything goes to shit and, um, People are angry and the, the abuser's blaming you and there's fighting and they, they'll threaten you. They'll intimidate you. They'll use things to like hold things over your head and try to get you to do what they want to comply. And then, you know, afterwards there's like the reconciliation. Um, the abuser and the abusee, they like try to come back, try to reconcile their love. The abuser apologizes and makes up excuses and blames the victim. That happened a lot with me. He said it was all my fault, that I prompted it, that it was my tone of voice, my attitude, um, everything, my, the look on my face that made him that way. Um, and, and that, it, or that, you know, and justifying it. Oh, it wasn't as bad as you think. Why are you making a big deal? Like trying to minimize it and minimize the person and their experience. And, um, and then again, it goes back to the same cycle, then the honeymoon phase. And then they're trying to make up for it because they want them to love them again. They want them to do what they said they're going to do. And they don't want to lose control over that person. So then again, it's a honeymoon, the tension builds, the incident, the reconciliation, the honeymoon, the tensions builds. The inc- that's, and it's again, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different outcome. I felt like I was going insane. And I know that there's a lot, there may be a lot of people out there, a lot of women and men who feel like they're in a cyclical situation where they just feel like they're going crazy and there is no way out of it. And there's different forms, again, how abuse plays out. And I think right now we're at a point where we're recognizing the, it's not all just obvious. It's not all just like somebody slapping you in your face or punching you or breaking a limb or something. Emotional abuse is, in my opinion, 
just as dangerous if i don't know i'm not going to say more but it's it's definitely just as dangerous as physical abuse the ways that it somebody can mess with your sense of literally perceiving yourself and others i walked around thinking that everyone was a threat not only other men because my my abuser made me he influenced me to believe that everyone wanted to take advantage of me so i was not trusting even though again in, intuitively i was like no these are nice people i like them i trust them they're not mean they're not thinking but again in order to build them up as the enemy he brainwashed me to believe that every guy definitely is like picturing me naked disrespecting me in their head um should not be trusted and to a degree it worked um he made everybody all my girlfriends an enemy because he made them either someone who didn't understand our relationship who just doesn't get our love and you know i don't care for so many years apart and they just don't get it we love each other so deeply and we have a connection that nobody else has literally just you know turning everything into a freaking r&b love ballad uh which made me so overly romanticize everything and just honestly okay and justify his abusive behavior it turned all my girlfriends into enemies either they didn't get it and and they were trying to rip us apart unfairly or they were a threat to our relationship because again he influenced me to believe that you know as a man he has these urges and that and so harvey fucking weinstein saying like oh it's just how i was brought up and the fact that women are abused victims are treated as like i couldn't help myself because you were just scantily like the whole oh what was she what were you wearing were you asking for it fuck you i don't care what i was wearing unless i say to you or jump on you and straddle you and tell you i want you to fuck me or do like there's no uh the 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 skewed imbalance of blame on the person and not on the perpetrator drives me nuts (laughs) as you can tell it drives me crazy because it's just you're feeding into that abusive behavior and to to this day we we've, we've been living in a society that drastically blames the victim why didn't you leave why didn't you do something about it why'd you accept it were you wearing anything like and again the laws that have existed around what a husband like in domestic abuse there have been laws that protected husbands like basically gave them the right to abuse their wives because they're the husband i mean I don't have enough time on this podcast to even dive. This is just scratching the surface. But this is so textbook. And once I was out of the relationship and I learned about the cycle of abuse, it was very clarifying and in a way liberating, but also just sad how textbook it was. I was just very like, wow, I'm a statistic. And then, you know, realizing meeting more and more women who've experienced it just makes me like... Wow, so we've all gone through this. And in a way, it was very encouraging because I'm just like, I didn't feel alone. But then it's infuriating because you're like, this happens this fucking often. Are you kidding me? And, you know, you care about other people. I have all these amazing women in my life to know that statistically that this many women have experienced abuse or have in some form. You know, if I don't have self-worth on myself, I at least value them. And like thinking of the fact that they've been disrespected and dehumanized and abused and walking around feeling unsafe and unsafe, unsafe and unloved and just that they don't have the power to to make choices in their own lives and that they've been suicidal like I have, that they wouldn't exist because this these ridiculous, gross, like damaged crazy motherfuckers just think that they can do that to somebody else and get away with it it's a lot so we need to understand the cycle of abuse we also need to understand you know the ultimate thing that i want to leave everybody with 
is that there are things that we can do about it. Obviously, sharing our stories is one thing. And I think that we are all in dire need of therapy and whatever their form that comes in for you. Um, I have a variety and I use all those forms of therapy for me as armor to protect myself, to strengthen myself, to empower myself because I can, and this is just kind of as, as a woman, as a, as a adult looking to all these outward forms of validation are very temporary and they're not going to really get to the root of the, the root of the problem. There's a lot of internal work that needs to be done that nobody else can do for me. They can't go back and reconcile my issues with my childhood, my father, my culture. That's all on me. I have a lot of anger and I need to find out how I'm going to deal with that. So the different ways that personally I've dealt with um, being a survivor and dealing with anger, I, I'm very into arts. Honestly, I sing on the regular. To me, I still think that's my form, one of my forms of therapy. I put it on my Facebook regularly that I have karaoke therapy. Letting my feelings out through songs and there's a lot of Beyonce, bless your heart, and, you know, Aretha Franklin and Alicia Keys and Celine Dion and Whitney Houston, where I care, like all of y'all, thank you, because you've helped me. You have given me therapy to sing my feelings out, to cry. Um, singing helps me. Working out helps me. Getting stress out of my body, l- releasing energy um, helps me feel good in my body. It helps me feel healthy and feel um, energized and have good self-esteem. I talk a lot, clearly, guys, this podcast, again, one of my therapies, um, talking with my friends, people I trust and that I respect. And um, I've gone and sought help. Uh, I did a couple counseling sessions. I did uh, betterhelp.com. And I'm not currently using that anymore, but um, it did help for a second. I just think that like having people, I have friends that are social workers. I have really gifted, intelligent, amazing friends that I can open to, up to about this. Um, I'm an actor. Doing my art, doing my craft is incredibly cathartic and he- helpful for me to dive into the human psyche, to understand um, empathy, to honestly uh, have forgiveness. I meditate. Um, not as consistently as I would like, but as much as humanly possible. It's like eating my vegetables. And now I'm trying to, I enjoy my vegetables literally. And I enjoy my mental vegetables, which is meditation. It gives me a sense of peace and calm. Um, I embrace my thoughts. I try to let them fall away from me so that I'm not clinging on to these negative feelings. And, um, honestly, I'm triggered. Obviously, when things like this come up, I get really angry. But on the daily, I'm not a super angry person. Um, I'm actually a very nice person and I'm really smiley and I laugh a lot. I joke a lot. I'm really silly. But yeah, this, this stuff is still in my body. And so I try to find my different ways. Not, I try. I don't like that word. I find different ways to, address it and and very incrementally in a way that I'm soothing myself and that I'm not beating myself up to take myself out of the the victim category and put myself more in the survivor category. I'm focusing on what I have done right. There's a lot that I could sit and wallow in saying I regret this and believe you me, I spent a long ass time beating myself up feeling just absolutely disgusting about myself, feeling like it was my fault that I allowed it to happen because I was the one who was aware from 14 years old that this guy should not be talking to me, you know, but it's, it's a, it's a marathon. This is a, it's for a lot of people, a lifelong journey and coming up out of like literally the pits of just darkness and self-loathing and shame and guilt and pain and distrust of other people and anger towards other people. But this is where we got to heal right? That's why I'm sharing the stories because I believe 
whether you are a survivor or whether you know one, and I'm fairly certain you do know one, whether they've told you or not, they're around us. It takes us to respect one another, to ask uncomfortable questions in as much of a safe possible way. You know, I'm not trying to go tell you guys to approach a random stranger and be like, tell me all about your most personal uh, traumas and, you know, tell me everything. It's not that. It's saying if be be a safe space for others, right? Um, be be brave if you need a safe space to go seek it out. People want to help. That's the main thing that there, I still believe that there are vastly more good people in this world than bad, but there's a lot of badness that happens and just goes un, unreported for a lot of different reasons because we feel powerless or we're just exhausted. Like literally I need to do so many things in a day and I'm just getting bombarded with shit. And that's honestly, that reality currently is not going to change anytime soon, right? So for me, it's like, well, then what are we going to do about it? How do we proceed from here? How do we protect ourselves? How do we protect one another? Because we're good people. We have good intentions. We do not want to intentionally hurt other people. But if we got to do that internal work and then we got to take that out outward, right? And um, I worked in domestic violence prevention for three years after college. I studied public health. I switched from medical to public health. And that happened. I broke up with my abuser in the middle of college. Quite frankly, I don't know how I got into college. I went to UC Berkeley and that's a miracle in and of itself. But we broke up my sophomore year. And from then on, I really went, I felt like I was released from a mental prison. I felt like I was released from like literally the depths of hell. I felt like I was gone and I was reborn and it was a very empowering moment. And then I was just like, okay, now the sky's the limit. What am I going to do? Thankfully, I got to heal relationships with my parents, within my family, with friends. I apologize. I was learning how to forgive myself. That's taken years, but that's really what allowed me to go forward and pursue things that I wanted to do. Feel like I deserved that I deserved happiness, that I was worthy of it, and I'm still dealing with that now. And the fact that, you know, I have the capability and even the responsibility to help out my fellow survivors and, and everybody, because we're all connected to one another. If you're not a survivor yourself and somebody else is and they're carrying around that rage, they're the people that you're interacting with on the road and in grocery supermarket, in supermarkets at the bank, you know, when you're buying a home, when you are neighbors, like these are all people around us. We're not living on an island in and of ourselves. It really benefits us to help one another. You know what I'm saying? Like on a logical level. So, um, I really want to encourage you guys to figure out the way that you want to approach this. People out there are sharing their stories in mass volume right now. So I think that it's really important that we can be as non-judgmental as possible to listen, to be honest with your feedback. If there's things you need to say, but do it from a place of empathy, from compassion, um, if you, people will preface you like, I'm not trying to be a dick. If you have to say that, you're pro- what you're, what's about to come out of your mouth is probably dickish, you know? So if that's what your mindset is, take a second to not say it. Take a second to reevaluate what you, what you want to say and then try to reframe it so that it actually is in alignment with that whole, I'm not trying to be a dick. I don't want to be a dick. Put it positively. Say, I want to be constructive. I want to help this conversation. What am I going to say? in public or otherwise or privately that will be constructive, that will help us progress in a positive direction. Because if you're going in and saying, I don't want to be a dick, I'm sorry, but what's in your head is dickish and it's probably going to come out like you're a dick. Um, and I also want to just share that, you know, there is the spectrum of prevention. This is the, the 
organization that I worked for right out of college. And I learned a lot working in domestic violence prevention for three years um, and meeting all these different coalitions and meeting policymakers and meeting doctors and um, people who work in the justice system, everyone from cops to, to judges, you know, there's basically there is a spectrum of preventing this stuff from happening again. And I want to share this with you guys because it influenced a lot of how I looked at the world and understanding that, um, the spectrum basically goes from individual knowledge and skills. Then you go up into promoting community education then you go to educating providers. Then you go to fostering coalitions and networks. Then you go to changing organizational practices and then ultimately influencing policy and legislation. So the influence of this on a public health level was taking any health outcome that you want to prevent, right? So saying you don't want rape to happen and you don't want abuse to happen. Well, the ironic thing about that is if you want to really prevent it, it's not going to happen. You're not going to have a statistic to count. You can talk, you can basically analyze a drop in abuse and a drop in rape and a drop in reported sexual assaults. But also, like, if it's not happening, you know, we need to be able to verify that it's not there and we need to be able to make it not happen at all. So having programs against rape victim, or not against, I'm sorry, programs to support rape victims, that's amazing and they need to exist. And I applaud the people doing that work, but that's still after somebody got raped, right? It's not preventing it. So we need to do on a marge, a marge, <laughs> on a much larger scale, we need to address this of how do we influence change in respecting women, respecting humans in general, but especially with women, the fact that we have, I don't know many women who have known a world where we have not been overtly objectified and commodified and treated as objects for the sexual pleasure of others, you know, that is, it's our job to look pretty and to be quiet, to make good food, to clean the house. I mean, still a lot of that shit still exists. I know everyone's going, oh, that's the fifties. Well, there's still a lot of that in very subtle ways now. Um, things from everything of like, again, language that's used between friends. I've had to call out my friends. Like, don't talk to me like that. I don't like it when you say that to me. One of my first uh, experiences with collaboration, I got a really sizable sponsorship. And one of my volunteer staff, who was, quote unquote, a friend of mine, the first thing that came out of his mouth when I announced, hey, you guys, I got X amount of dollars for our showcase. I'm really excited. And, you know, it's a moment of celebration. His words were, oh, what'd you do to get that? And uh, that was fun. That's not the first time I've had guys say stuff like that to me. And now I'm just like, shut the fuck up. Don't talk like that to me. And that was one of the first times I ever had to pull aside a friend because I was so irked by it and so grossed out. Again, this is post-abusive relationship. Had to call him out and be like, why did you say that to me? I feel really disrespected. I did something good for our team and you just embarrassed me and disrespected me and said nasty things in front of our entire team. That was completely unnecessary. I was like, do you even consider me a friend? So that wasn't a fun conversation to have, but I'm really glad that I had that. It serves me in terms of remembering, oh, there's other conversations I can have with other people. And um, just promoting community education. You guys, like the, I'll share a link to this image so that you guys can see it and reference it if it, it's helpful at all in any way. We have a lot of different ways we can influence our surroundings. It can be really uncomfortable and it can be really, um, of course, first and foremost, I want everyone to be safe, but also just 
stick up for yourself. You know, um, people have your back. And also the biggest reminder for fellow survivors and people who are currently in situations where they don't particularly see a, a light at the end of the tunnel, which I know that feeling very well, there absolutely is. That the person you are and the person that you are involved with are not the end-all be-all. This is not the last version of yourself and this is not the the only person that could ever care about you. And there are people out there who do care, who want to see you happy and safe and prospering and you know safe it's you're not alone i really really want to leave and uh leave this podcast episode and leave you all with that you're not alone that's why i'm sharing this is i've been embarrassed to share these things because it made me look i was scared that people would look at me a certain type of way if uh, again we have a lot of different issues around sexual behavior and the secrecy of that and just (laughs) so many more things to talk about so many more things but we're human we're trying to figure it out we want to be loved and appreciated we want to feel safe we want to feel productive and like we're contributing to something greater i know i'm like making these big generalizations speaking a lot of people but that's what i've kind of summarized from interacting with thousands upon thousands of people in my lifetime. I think everyone just wants to enjoy life and be loved. Uh, and I think that starts with loving ourselves, still comes back to that, doing the internal work to forgive, to embrace, to uh, be real and honest. It's all just a step-by-step process. So hang in there, you guys. We will get through this together. This is a huge shift in our society in terms of what we will tolerate and what we will be aware of and conscious of as acceptable behavior. And, you know, now we're moving into a more subtle category. We're now all the, I think we're going to move out of the very obvious forms of abuse of power, sexual abuse, assault, all those things. The obvious things are going to definitely they have had their day and now they're done. And props to the Academy for kicking out Harvey Weinstein because I don't want him voting on my movies. I also don't want Casey Affleck and Sidney Pollack and all these other known abusers to like, I don't want them in there either. So I'm putting that on the universe. Please, Academy, kick all known sexual predators out of the Academy. They don't deserve that honor and prestige. I don't want them voting on my movies. And, uh, well, I'm not even an Academy member yet, but I will be. So please, uh, stay positive. Please love one another. Um, heal. This is an active process. Heal, forgive, um, seek help, be open to it, be compassionate to one another, be patient with yourselves. Um, it's, there's so many things involved in this. It's a very, very loaded subject. And I, I appreciate all you guys, uh, listening in on my story, the segment that I shared. And, um, yeah, I want to also reassure you guys that like, I, I'm okay. (laughs) I'm, I'm really doing so much better in life. I'm just so grateful. I wish I could, I just want to have episodes where I'll just do thank yous. There's so many people I want to thank for being there for me, for saving me, for being a safe place for me, for reaffirming me and, um, letting me believe in people again and believing in myself and feeling like I have purpose because that again far outweighs in quantity and impact that far outweighs what this 
one guy did. He he went to town, though, man. He took a wallop on my life. But I'm also very much fueled by all of the things that I went through because I I won't I probably will never forget. I don't think I'll ever forget. Um, but I'm not gonna live in that darkness, and I'm uh, I want to help other people. As much for them as for me, too, because I got to deal with you guys. You guys, like, I have to deal with you guys. I want us all to be happy. <laughs> okay? Um, I don't want to walk into public places and feel fearful. It goes back to, like, everything. I'm, like, literally, ugh. It just touches on so many other things. So I want to say thank you to Marvin Yue, my producer. This is an extra long episode. Bless your heart. Thank you for <laughs> helping me get this podcast off the ground and for helping me uh, make this a reality and being so supportive. And Marvin's been an incredible friend and he has been supporting me as as um, a colleague, a coworker, and a friend for a long time, just making sure that I'm okay and that I'm supported. So thank you so much, Marvin. I really, truly appreciate you. And uh, thank you. I'm putting... Uh, Travis Atreo back for my intro song. Just set free is one of my favorite songs. Uh, Aquafina will be back next week because I, I fucking love her. But, uh, set free is a really meaningful song that Travis wrote and, uh, it is very representative of what I want to hopefully empower other people to feel as well. Don't be contained in your own prison. It's not worth it. And the world needs you. We need your light. We need your smile and your joy and your warmth. So let's get that going. (laughs) I think that was phrased really awkwardly, but whatever. Also, thank you to everybody who is a patron on my Patreon. If you want to support this podcast, um, I really want to have a sound studio. (laughs) I'm putting that out there. I really want to have like a cool sound sound booth where I can interview everyone and just I want to build. So if you feel inclined to support this podcast on Patreon, please do. Um, And follow First of All Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. And, uh, yeah, you can email firstofallpod at gmail.com. I love hearing your guys' thoughts. Thank you to all my friends who've been giving me hugs in person and appreciating me out loud to my face. I appreciate it. Have an amazing week. Be good to one another. Let's fight the good fight. And uh, fuck you, Harvey Weinstein. Good riddance. And also fuck you, Donald Trump. Oh, that's kind of a negative way to end it, but that's my honest opinion. But, um, okay, fine. I'll end it with this. I love you guys. Have a great week. Um, be good to one another. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. She gets her bags, I'll pack her soon enough. It's time to let go of all she sees. Her heart is hurting knowing well that it's all right. Life is more than just a memory She said, it's time, I'm ready to go I'm leaving my tears on the side of the road Cause this ain't how life's supposed to be